This morning's reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the boat, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. The other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning to those of you here, to those of us, or to those of you that are joining us uh, live stream as well. A rather epic story in all of the New Testament scripture. And though Jesus' disciples had by this time seen countless demonstrations of Jesus' divine power, they were not prepared for the display of unbridled omnipotence that occurred on the Sea of Galilee on that particular occasion. As night began to fall after a long day, long, long day of preaching for Jesus to the crowds that were gathered on the shores of the northwest tip of the Sea of Galilee near the city of Capernaum, Jesus and his followers headed for the eastern shores for rest and admittedly for some time away from the multitudes. If we were to move into Mark chapter 5, we'd realize it was at that precise location then that Jesus subsequently delivered a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. Sea of Galilee is an amazing body of water, 13 miles long, 7 miles wide, nearly 700 feet below sea level. Interesting to refer to a sea as 700 feet below sea level, but that is the truth, and thus that makes it the lowest fresh water body of water in the entire world, and it also is the most significant geological feature of the region of Galilee. To this day, its pristine water is the source of drinking water for those who live all around its borders, and it also supports a thriving fishing industry. Now, significantly, the steep hills and the cliffs that surround the Sea of Galilee make it vulnerable to high winds, which are known to cause sudden violent storms uh, there on the surface of the lake. What happens is the cooler air travels down from the higher elevations of the northern Golan Heights, 
And then that collides with the warm air that has already been trapped in the basin of the lake, creating these turbulent conditions that are even further intensified as winds plummet down through the canyons and the valleys surrounding the upper Jordan Valley. According to Luke's account of this same event, Jesus' miracle of the calming of the sea, when Jesus and the disciples, after that long day of ministry, decided to set out across the water on what was likely a small open fishing vessel, there was a gentle but steady breeze that just moved them along to the point that, at least initially, none of them had to even row that boat. Exhausted, after a day of long, long preaching and numerous healings, Jesus fell asleep on the very hard wood planks in the stern of the boat, resting his head upon a cushion. As you're watching uh, and looking on in your text, whatever form you have it delivered to you this morning in, we learn from Mark 4.37 that suddenly this hurricane-forced tempest raced down the slopes and whipped across the surface of the sea, turning it into this violent, convulsive sea. Even though the disciples feverishly bailed all the water out of their boat that they possibly could, they soon realized they were in great danger because the waves were overcoming the boat, already filling it with water. It was completely swamped. And amazingly, not even the, the severe tossing of the boat, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, or the, the roaring of the wind or the blowing water that was slapping against his face was sufficient to awaken Jesus. Please recall that several of Jesus' disciples were very experienced, seasoned fishermen. Having spent their lives navigating this immense lake, they knew very well what their boats were capable of enduring. And the fact that they were terrified by the wind and the waves on this particular occasion dramatically underscores how extreme this storm was. And when it became obvious that the most heroic of their efforts were still no match for this epic storm, they were absolutely panic-stricken. Verse 38 informs us that in desperation, they attempted to awaken Jesus. In doing so, they were struggling to be heard over the roar of the howling wind and these towering waves. The disciples hoped that the one who could cleanse lepers, they had already seen that. The one who could restore sight to the blind, they had already seen that. The one that could heal any form of disease, they had seen that. They were so hopeful that that same Jesus had power over the wind and over the sea. The accounts of these events in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels indicate that these terrified, these absolutely horror-stricken disciples were shocked, they were confused, and they were even frustrated that Jesus remained asleep while they were going through this horrific experience. And even though they had no legitimate reason to question his care for them or 
to be concerned about the perilous condition in which they found themselves. And even though they had witnessed his divine power, even though they had followed him long enough to know of his genuine love for them, their faith and their steadfastness were replaced by intense fear and extreme doubt. In response to the desperate cries of his disciples, Jesus, in verse 39, used a simple command to restrain the waves and to restore that convulsive sea to absolute stillness. Just as he had rebuked spiritual powers previously, and those spiritual powers obeyed him, so these natural powers instantaneously submitted to the authoritative command of their creator. And so at that simple, single, brief command of Jesus, the towering waves ceased, the howling gusts were silenced, the air became immediately clear, and the water became like glass. Having instantly and completely calmed the storm and made the Sea of Galilee perfectly still, Jesus now shifted his attention away from that which is of immense concern to the disciples, and now it was time to address the winds of fear and the waves of doubt that had been raging in the hearts of his disciples. They clearly knew that Jesus possessed divine power. No question about it. They had seen him heal countless individuals. However, when their own lives were imperiled, it was the inadequacy of their own faith that was exposed. So we read in verse 40 that Jesus gently rebuked the disciples by asking, why are you so afraid? Have you still... No faith. After all that you have seen, all that you have witnessed, all that you have observed in following me to this point of time, have you still no faith? In effect, Jesus was saying to the disciples, do you not believe in me and in my power and in my love? Haven't you seen enough of my power? Haven't you experienced enough of my love to know that you are perfectly safe with me. You have seen me perform miracle after miracle, even for those individuals that never trusted me and did not even bother to thank me. You've witnessed my power and my compassion, and so you should know by now that because of my power, I can help you, and because of my compassion, I will help you. What do you have to be worried about? That's a question for us today whether you're here, whether you're at home. What do you have to be worried about in light of who Jesus truly is? Jesus used this dramatic situation to teach his disciples that they could trust him regardless. That they could trust him no matter how severe, no matter how threatening, no matter how helpless the situation would be that they might find themselves in. And we will return to that point in just a moment, that that there's more in this text that we want to unpack first. So a little time out, a little aside, 
a very important one, then we're coming back to this whole matter of what does it really take, what should it be like to trust Jesus in the absolute most painful, seemingly hopeless situations of life that we find ourselves. The text has much more for us here. Having survived the terror of an epic storm at sea, the disciples' realization that the creator of the universe was in their boat was far more frightening than any terror that they could experience outside of their boat. They thought the problem was over when the, the storm was calmed, but it was just beginning for them. They had encountered fierce storms on the Sea of Galilee before, but they had not experienced at sea the kind of supernatural power that Jesus had just displayed. And in addition to that, they realized that only God Almighty possessed such supernatural power. In their intense astonishment, they asked one another a question that they already knew the answer to, but the question was this, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You might recall that a future point in following Jesus, after Jesus miraculously walked on the water, this particular record in Matthew 14, verse 33, the disciples spelled out their answer, truly, you are the Son of God. Again, they realized it, but the incredible force of the realization that God Almighty, the completely, absolutely holy God, was with them in what probably now seemed like a very small boat. What do you do as a helpless, hopeless sinner when you are that close? You are in the midst of the presence of God and right face to face with God incarnate. That was the problem that they faced. Should be noted that based on numerous occasions recorded in Scripture, fear is the natural and very appropriate response for sinful human beings whenever they are in the presence of God. You might recall that when Jesus' disciples, um, and particularly in this one, realized that God incarnate was present with them in the boat, like other individuals that were recorded in Scripture, they were so overcome with fear at the thought of his power and holiness that they were more terrorized now than when it was just uh, the attention was focused on this almost unparalleled storm that they had already experienced at sea. It is helpful in light of this for us to be reminded that God's majesty is so overwhelming that when he displays himself in even a small part of his glory, people cannot stand in his presence. Throughout the Bible, such power awed and terrified those who witnessed it because they realized that they were completely helpless sinners and they were standing in the midst of absolute Unbridled holiness. The only thing that the disciples found more terrifying than the storm at sea on that given day was having the creator and the controller of that storm inside of their boats. 
So what was outside was not nearly as overwhelming as what was inside the boat. On the one hand, this remarkable incident testifies to the divine glory of Christ as sovereign over all powers of the natural world. No exceptions. In addition to that, it's a monumental testimony to his compassionate care. In the midst of a frightening storm, out in the middle of that vast Sea of Galilee, and in spite of the disciples' diminishing faith, the sovereign Savior rescued his followers. I don't know if you even noticed one of the two books that was up on the screen, um, I, maybe because on the front row, I was able to notice that, that it pictured that very incident. Jesus was at that point not asleep in the boat. He was standing in the boat as he commanded that storm to be instantly still. So what transpired at the end of Mark chapter 4, does that help you personally to rest more confidently in the fact that through each and every storm that you may be currently facing, and through each of the storms throughout the course of your life that you will subsequently face, does it help you realize that the omnipotent Lord of creation, and as a reminder, because that was a big word, but omnipotent does mean all-powerful, as in nothing is more powerful, nothing stands in the way of what he chooses to do, does the awareness that this omnipotent Lord of creation is willing and is able to deliver you and all who trust in him, does that awareness give you some measure of hope, some measure of encouragement, also knowing that it is not dependent on the level of your trust in him. You can have very weak faith, and you can pass this test, whatever that test might be for you. Please hear this very clearly. Now we're getting into, if you want to jot some notes that are provided within the bulletin, uh, we are at that point. Do not take what we've covered so far as a mere introduction, though, or there's going to be a, some serious panic, you'll have that which might terrify you as well as you think how long we might be here. Because God can and will care for each of his children because he can and will do that. There is no hardship or danger through which he cannot or will not take us. His love and his power will guide us through, protect us from, enable us to be victorious in the midst of any storm. Therefore, we have no reason to be afraid of anything. It is to say that when we face trials, we can rest confidently in the promise of Romans 8.28, which says, and we know that God causes all things, that's a pretty inclusive term, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And strengthened with that reassuring promise, we're able to obey the command of Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. 
Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. So if you can't figure it out, take note, it surpasses what you're able to grasp and understand. That peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I appreciate the fact that the guy who wrote that had lived it, had experienced it. He's a a guy that I want to listen to. That guy, Apostle Paul, who penned those words, endured the many severe trials of his ministry, and there were many, and they were intense. He endured those with that very confidence of Philippians 4, 6 through 7, that confidence that God would guard his heart and his mind in Christ Jesus. And as the Apostle Paul's life was drawing to an end, he boldly declared in 2 Timothy 4, 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever Amen. Take it on Paul's word. Now, let's have a moment of genuine honesty with one another. And I'll include myself in that party. Every follower of Jesus Christ knows that knowledge of God's power and trust in that power don't always get mixed together in our lives. I trust I'm not the only one that struggles to mix the two of those together. Uh, Knowledge of his power and trust in that power on a regular basis. Our frailties and our weaknesses are so ingrained in us that even after we have witnessed God doing some absolutely stunning, marvelous, I couldn't believe he did it type things, we fall into doubt, we fall into fear, we fall into worry, we fall into anxiety. No, I don't expect you to amen that, but just be honest with me that that is our lot. Our faith needs constant strengthening, doesn't it? We know, we know that God can perfectly provide, yet we also know that we can so easily fail to trust in that provision, how easily we can doubt His love. We know that He gives peace that passes understanding, which is the way another Translation expresses that out of Philippians 4. We, we know that, we believe it, but he, we also know how quickly that peace can be followed by our worry and our despair and our anxiety. The ninth chapter of Max Lucado's book entitled Anxious for Nothing is entitled Think About What You Think About. I think that's a people God would want us to uh, respond to today. Think about what you think about. There, Lucado encourages readers to practice what he refers to as thought management. And after he makes the one statement that we have in your notes, he says, you can pick what you ponder. You can pick what you ponder. After making that statement, Lucado writes this, You didn't select your birthplace or birth date. You didn't choose your parents or siblings. You don't determine the weather or the amount of salt in the ocean. There are many things in life over which you have absolutely 
no choice. But the greatest activity of life is well within your dominion. You can choose what you think about. Listen to this one. This is what, man, I'm going to hold on to this and milk it for all I can get out of it. You can be the air traffic controller of your mental airport. I repeat that one. You can be the air traffic controller of your mental airport. He goes on. You occupy the control tower and can direct the mental traffic of your world. Thoughts circle above, coming and going. If one of them lands, it's because you gave it permission. If it leaves, it's because you directed it to do so. You can select your thought pattern. Hmm. Let me give you an example that I think fits well into the subject of thought management, which is actually an incredibly biblical concept, as we'll see here in a moment. Uh, so an example of this whole idea of choosing what you think about or thinking about what you think about, this idea of selecting your thought pattern. In 1947, Corey Ten Boom returned home to the Netherlands to share Christ's gospel. Many of you know the story. Uh, during World War II, her family had been caught hiding Jews. She and her sister Betsy had been sent to Ravensbrück, one of the most infamous of the Nazi death camps. Corey traveled the world through the later 1950s into the 1980s, sharing with millions the message of God's forgiveness. But that message did not come easily to Corey. Her battle to accept God's sovereign control had been fought in the living hell of the Ravensbrook concentration camp and during a war that claimed the life of everybody that she was related to and loved dearly. Before Corey's sister Betsy died alongside of her uh, at Ravensbrook, she described, this is Betsy describing to Corey, God's sovereignty, and, and Betsy described it in a way that changed Corey's life from that point forth. This is Betsy talking. I don't know why God allows suffering, Corey. All I know is that across the blueprint of our lives, God wrote the word Ravensbrook. Tell them, Corey. Tell them that no pit is so deep that God's love is not deeper still. They will listen to you because we have been here. This morning I'm emphasizing the fact that each of us needs to become a preacher. We need to learn to preach to our own minds and hearts. We need to learn to preach to our own minds and hearts. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Do you have any idea who the psalmist was speaking to at that point? Who he was preaching to? If your answer is himself, I do encourage you to move to the front of the line. That is exactly he, he was practicing the preaching 
the art of preaching to himself. I agree wholeheartedly with the famous British preacher of a previous generation, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who asked this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Most of the unhappiness in our lives, he contends, is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. We need to heed the command of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, the early set of verses there, in taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Preach to the mind. Preach to the heart. Take every thought captive. And it was the great Bible teacher and theologian Sinclair Ferguson who stated our problem is we think with our feelings. We think with our feelings. There's a lot of the times where I do not feel joy in God. But 100% of the time, I have the ability, the capacity, and actually the responsibility to tell myself, to remind myself, to keep telling myself, to keep reminding myself that God is my joy. When we find ourselves tempted to engage in sinful behavior, when we find that our emotions are beginning to take control of us, when we feel that we're helpless to do that or we're powerless over such and such, it is in those times that we need to speak truth to our hearts. It's time to put on the preacher hat. I recommend that in the midst of your storms, you say the truth to yourself repeatedly until it sinks in. God is all I need. God is all I need. It's good to even say it slowly, deliberately. God is all I need. It's good to say it out loud to God. He can hear whatever form of speech you use. He can hear your whisper. It's good for you to hear yourself making that confession to the Almighty God. You, God, are all I need. God, you are enough. The truth of the gospel does bring change, doesn't it? Do you realize that the difference between people is not the circumstances that they go through, but is the way in which they deal with those circumstances? And that is what determines who lives on the peak and who lives in the valley. Fortunately, each of us gets to make our own choices. It can be stated this way, that trusting God is not a matter of our feelings, but our will. Trusting God is not a matter of our feelings, but our will. It is our choice. Before I lead you briefly in prayer, I'll leave you three questions that each of us would be wise to ask of ourselves consistently. Uh, questions that can help us take every thought captive. The first of those, do you believe that God is in control? 
Do you believe that God is in control? Second, do you believe that God is good no matter what you see and no matter what you face? Again, that second question primarily for the benefit of those that may be viewing it online. Do you believe that God is good no matter what you see and no matter what you face? And lastly, will you wait on God? Will you wait on God by faith until the darkness becomes light? Will you wait on God by faith until the darkness becomes light? Let's talk to him together, okay? Sovereign God, we thank you by faith for something that we do not fully understand, and we're not going to pretend that we do. Scripture reveals that you're big enough to take care of us. Of you alone can it be said that no detail of our lives is too insignificant for your attention, and no circumstance is so big that you cannot control it. We acknowledge before you that we really are safe in the hands of a fully competent, all-knowing, ever-present God. Please speak to our storms just as you did to the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Please calm the chaos within us just as you calmed the hearts of the disciples. Some of us this morning that are, are listening uh, are weary from worry. Some are battered, even belittled by the fierce gales of life. Almighty God, please quench our anxiety. Give us, we pray, a spirit of calm. And as we view the problems of the world, help us to bend our knees rather than wringing our hands. Others who have gone through valleys like we have faced, those individuals have testified to your faithfulness. Like them, we ask for your grace. As we choose by faith to take our eyes off our experience, off of our feelings, and we choose to wait in hope to see your sovereign purposes being revealed. Whether in this life or the life to come, we choose to believe that you are good and that you do all things well. At times we do not see it. Even in this moment, some of us do not feel it. But we choose not to let those things rule our faith. God, we confess that you are good and that generations have tasted and seen that you are good. Our gracious Father, we believe in your word and by faith we submit to your sovereignty. We trust you. We submit to you. We worship you. Please help each of us find calm in our chaos. Amen.